0: Be seated. The Gospel Brings a Revolution, Part (laughs) 2. That's the worst thing you can possibly do for a title of a message. The Gospel Brings a Revolution, Part 2. Just failed homiletics class. Thankfully, y'all are patient. As we started unfolding last week in our passage, the gospel brings division. We highlighted the fact that Jesus said He did not come to bring peace, but rather a sword. This does not mean, as the disciples thought, let's pick up arms and fight. It meant that the message of Jesus, which calls for self-denial and submission to a Savior who died and rose from the dead is offensive. The gospel brings peace in Christ, but division with the world. The gospel says we are no longer king, Jesus is. We are responsible for Jesus' death, so we need to humbly embrace Christ and joyfully serve Him. The gospel is especially offensive to the majority of Jews during Jesus' day. There were two hot buttons in the gospel for the missionaries. The two main truths of the gospel that seemed to always get the disciples in trouble with the world. Two lightning rods of truth. Yet Peter and Paul and the other missionaries and the apostles boldly proclaimed these two truths almost every time they got opportunity to proclaim the gospel. The two hot buttons were these. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel is also for the Gentile. Those two hot buttons. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel is for the Gentiles also. I want to briefly show this to you as we review a little bit because I didn't finish all the way last week, but I I think it's good for us to review a little bit and look at this, especially in light of the day it being the Resurrection Sunday that we are celebrating today. Look back over at Acts chapter 1. Take your Bibles, turn back over there. And I want to track with you those two hot-button ideas. Look at Acts chapter 1. From the very beginning of Acts, the resurrection was a primary theme. In Acts 1 it states, "...to these He," that is Jesus, "...also presented Himself alive after His suffering." By many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So the resurrection starts in Acts, and you will see it will be proclaimed the rest of the way through Acts. When the apostles replaced Judas, the replacement apostle had to have seen the resurrected Savior. Notice in 122, it states... Beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The resurrection was an essential part of the gospel. And the foundation of the church was based on the apostles' testimony concerning the resurrection. In the first message at Pentecost, look over at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching... And he states in verse 23, notice, This man, talking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. Jesus is alive. Isn't that good news? just lights my fire. I couldn't get up here quick enough to talk about this. This is like, wow. We can be alive, folks. Not dead in sin anymore. Why? Jesus is alive. And the disciples repeated the the primacy and the... The preeminence of the resurrection. Notice in 3.14. Look over at 3.14. They repeat it. Peter's second sermon. Verse 14. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life. The one whom God raised from the dead. A fact which we are witnesses. The disciples get it, right? But this teaching enraged the Jewish elites. Notice their reaction in 4 2. Notice in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Beloved, do you understand the glory of this? That they were enraged because the resurrection of the dead of Jesus. Guaranteed that we would be resurrected. Those that trust in Him will be resurrected. The resurrection is a reality. Jesus' resurrection promises a resurrection for all of His followers. There's a spiritual resurrection that happens when? Right away, when we're born again. That's tied to Christ's resurrection. And again, look over at Acts chapter 5. It's every chapter, right? As the gospel is gone, goes out, matter in Acts chapter matter of fact go back to Acts chapter 4 I want to look at one more. Acts chapter 4 verse 10 let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which the builders rejected by you, the builders but which became the chief cornerstone. The resurrection of Jesus provided the power for com- curing this ill man that Peter did. And Jesus was reigning. He was still healing. And his resurrection showed that he was still distributing and showing his power. The Jews hated this fact. And again over in Acts chapter 5, look over there. Acts chapter 5. After their release from prison, what do they do? They say it again. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. It's like over and over and over they keep doing it. Even when they tell them stop, they keep saying it. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. And friends, I believe Stephen, look over at Acts chapter 7, would have gotten to the resurrection. (laughs) If he wouldn't have been cut off. He was preaching, and he was preaching an amazing sermon. And you know what the pinnacle of the sermon was? Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the dead. It was the same sermon. You killed Jesus, and God raised him from the dead. That's what was going to be said. I really believe this. This is what Stephen was thinking. But before he could get to that punchline, as you would say... The people began to silence him, and they wanted to put him to death, correct? But notice in Acts chapter 7, this is just the way God is. He makes sure his message gets out anyway. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What's that imply? Resurrection. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right right hand of God. He still got to the punchline. It's as if God says, here, look. And Jesus is standing there alive, reigning at the right hand of God. And Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Notice their reaction to this truth. Jesus is alive? What do they think of that? But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Wow. The message of the resurrection got out anyway, didn't it? And it created anger. To make the point of the resurrection, Jesus even more emphatic, what does, what does the Lord do in Acts chapter 9? He converts one of those Pharisees that were trying to kill people. How does he convert them? He converts him by showing himself to him. If you read through the rest of the book of Acts, what you're going to see is, is that he... Jesus showed himself. When it says a great light, he saw more than just the light. He saw Jesus. How do we know? Because it's described later on in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, where he says, I saw Jesus. I, one of the least of the apostles. So he saw the resurrected Jesus. Again, isn't this the irony of ironies? <laughs> they hate the idea of the resurrected Jesus, and so what keeps coming up? The resurrected Jesus. You killed him, but he's alive. Notice also that second main point or hot button of the gospel. That was a lightning rod. The gospel was for the Gentiles too. Not only had the Jewish people missed their Messiah and killed him only to have him resurrected, they also, this message of hope from the gospel, their Messiah was meant for the Gentiles to be saved also. This was, uh, for lack of a better term, the straw that broke the camel's back. This enraged them. This anger over the theme of the resurrected Savior providing life to the Gentiles will be an ongoing theme throughout the book of Acts. And by the way, just a heads up a little bit for Acts chapter 15, it was even a bone of contention within the church for a while. It was hard to swallow for even the, uh, the believing Jew, the, the, the Jewish person that had embraced the Christ. But notice this anger. Look over at Acts chapter 22. Let me give you a little preview of it. We see it in our passage in Acts 13, but I want you to see the big picture. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is standing in Jer- Jerusalem giving his defense before the Jews, and it's amazing. <laughs> He, he's got their ear. They're enraged. They want him dead. But he stands up and he gets to speak. And the Romans say, okay, go ahead and speak. And he begins to speak. And Paul is given a testimony of seeing the resurrected Savior to a large group of people. He gives his testimony. I saw him on the road to Damascus on the way to kill him. On the way to kill Christians. And he explained that he saw Jesus. Notice in Acts 22, verse 17. And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple. He's talking to them. That I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So in other words, he saw the resurrected Jesus how much? How many times? At least twice. He saw him again. He saw Jesus again. Boy, that's not good, is it? He just said, I saw him again, notice, and I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for their coats, or for the coats of those who were slaying him, talking of Stephen. And Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Oh oh, no, the resurrected Jesus is telling them that he's going to the Gentiles with the message. How do you think they respond? Well, look, (laughs) they listened to him up to that statement. And then they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust up into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. (laughs) He couldn't get it. The The Roman official just couldn't figure it out. But the Jews knew exactly why. Why were they mad? He's talking about the resurrected Jesus. And that the message is for the Gentiles too. This is no way. Can't have this. Thankfully, Paul was spared from the scourging. By saying, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You better not do that. And he appeals to Caesar... But the Jewish people sought to kill him for a couple years until he finally made his way to Rome through being in prison and waiting. They hated the resurrected Savior. And they hated the gospel was for the Gentiles too. As soon as, the Paul, as Paul says he was called to be a preacher of the Gentiles, they became enraged. Uh, at this point you might think, well, man, you sure are teaching an anti-Semitic. Message today. I mean, should we not be enraged at the Jews? Only if you miss the whole whole point of the message. Why were these two truths so divisive? Why did they create such anger? Why would a resurrected Savior, a Savior for the whole world without distinction, cause such hostility? Why would that make them so angry? Well, first, the resurrection said at that time, the vast majority of Jewish people missed it. Their Messiah came and they missed it. In fact, they killed him, but God raised him from the dead, showing that they were wrong. Their self-righteousness was provoked by being exposed to By their lack of understanding of their own scriptures. Their rejection of the Messiah and His resurrection exposed their unrighteousness. They didn't even understand their own Bibles. They didn't get it. But they herald themselves as what? Knowing their Bibles. This was an exposure, folks. And it went right at the very thing that keeps a person from being saved. Pride. Pride. Second, the hope of going to the Gentiles said to the Jew, the Gentiles get to share in the blessings of the Messiah. Now that sounds like good information, doesn't it? Wouldn't you be excited? My neighbors get the gospel too. That would make you happy, right? the Jewish Messiah's mission can be applied to the Gentiles too. This was repulsive. But the Jewish people wanted their Messiah for them and them only. They wanted a Christ that was for them and them only. They hated the thought of a Savior for the world. They were God's elect in their minds. So obviously they believed their Messiah was for them and not the wicked pagan. Their self-righteousness was exposed by their high view of themselves. They believe God chose the they they believe that they were God chosen and that only they deserve to have a Messiah and were worthy of a blessing of a Messiah. Oh folks, do you understand? That is a scary place to be, isn't it? Anybody in here think you deserve to be saved? I hope not. Because if so, you're not saved. Oh, that's a hard thing to say, isn't it? But it's the reality. If you think you're here on Resurrected Sunday because you deserve to be saved, you've missed it. The fact is, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a truth that's hard to swallow for many today, isn't it? The reason it's hard to swallow is for different reasons, but ultimately... It's still rooted in one main thing, the heart condition. Our secular culture says, seeing is believing. i got to see it, and then I'll believe it. I haven't seen it, so I won't believe it. That's what our secular culture says. And it says, we want a king. We can see and we can serve. It says, he must be our servant here on this earth. That's what they want For a savior. That's what our secular culture wants. Boy, doesn't it sound just like the Jewish people? The world wants a king that gives them what they want. A king that satisfies their fleshly desires. You know how a politician wins? All they have to do is promise them something. A king that lets them do morally whatever they want to do. That king gets elected every time. But provides perfect protection and fleshly provisions. But Jesus is a king that died and rose from the dead two thousand years ago and left. And now he calls us to pick up our cross and be willing to die for him. Boy, that message goes over real great, doesn't it? We who have been born again though know it's true, don't we? We know he is a living king. The fact is, our rebirth is possible because His death and resurrection. This was Paul's point in Acts 13. Turn back there, Acts 13, 39. In Acts 13, 39, this is the point of the resurrection. This is the point of Jesus dying. And though, and through Him, rather, and through Him, talking of Jesus... Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we who were dead in sin are now alive in Christ. Praise the Lamb. We are freed from all things, specifically sin and death. That death sentence that was placed on us through Adam. The law could not free us from the death sentence, could it? But the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah provides life. The results are we turn from sin and we trust in God and His Son whom He sent. We repent and believe daily. We're constantly turning to Him and confessing our sin because we're granted a new life in Him. So we come to a very important point. Jesus provides spiritual life today for His children through His resurrection power. And one day we will enjoy life in heaven because of His resurrection. And then one day our bodies will be resurrected because of His resurrection. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. Friends, this is a good day to celebrate We are alive because Jesus is alive. We are free from sin and the bondage of sin because Jesus is alive, as Romans 6 states. For the one who is still dead in their sins that's here today, this is not good news. In fact, it's very offensive. It's offensive because it says you are dead in your sins, you are a sinner. And all that you can do is sin. Boy, that's a real kind message to say to people on Easter Sunday, huh? So for the world, the resurrection is what? Foolishness. It's also offensive. Because if they don't believe it, then they will die in their sins. And they will spend eternity separated from God. If we don't believe... In the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we are still dead in our sins. Do you hear that, liberal? It's the truth. The bodily resurrection is not just an idea, it's a fact. And it's the basis of our life if we're a believer. So as we begin to unfold this message today, I want to challenge all of you that might not be believers. I want you to listen closely. If you hear the message of the gospel... And God is beginning to work in your heart. Turn to Him and trust in Him. Today is the day. Repent of your sins. Embrace Christ as your Savior and Lord. Follow Him and there will be life. Eternal life. And you will enjoy Him forever. I want to call all of you here. Evaluate your heart. Evaluate your condition. Turn to Christ. He's your hope. Not tomorrow. Now. Plead for God to save you. There is hope in the resurrected Savior. He died to pay for your sin. That was the introduction. (laughs) So as we began to unfold last week, the gospel is scandalous, isn't it? For the believer, it's glorious news because of God's saving work through Jesus. And for the unbeliever, it's offensive because it's condemning. It says you are a sinner and the world hates to be called a sinner. The world can't stand being confronted. Remember, we saw last week the response to the gospel by the people in the Antioch. Notice in verses 42 to 52, it talks about this response. It started with the initial intrigue in verses 42 to 43. That is, Initially, everybody was on board. Everybody said, give me more. But much like the, much like the uh, word that had fallen on rocky places, it sprung out fast, but many of them fell away. Notice in verses 44 to 47, the rising division. We saw the rise of the Gentiles' interest provoked the Jews to jealousy. Again, those two divisive truths were being heralded it, even in this message, right? We read it and saw. The resurrection is being over said over and over again. And then the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles is proclaimed in verses 46 to 47. Look at it in 46 again. 13-46 Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There is the dividing line. Boom! He just laid it down. And notice the joyful embrace in verses 48 to 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. All right, so somebody came up to me afterwards and said, you're not going to skip that verse, are you? You're not going to skip over that last little phrase there that's such a hot topic. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. The answer is no. I think I'll preach a whole sermon on it. (laughs) The Gentiles heard that scripture that it pointed to their own salvation and true joy broke out, worship breaks out. These were like the music uh, music to the Gentiles' ears. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Oh, folks, isn't this good news? We can be saved. (laughs) Jesus died for us too. (laughs) He's alive. And we can live. We can have our sins paid for. We can know the light of the glory of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And notice they began exalting the word of God. How many of you, that's what our life is, right? We just want to hear more of it. I just want to hear more of it. Give me more of the word. This is the finest evidence of a repentant heart. This is it right here. I want more of the Bible. Give me more of the gospel. I want to know it better. I want to know it fuller. I want to apply it more. Beloved, what we do with the Word of God reveals where our hearts are. I know this time of the year is a highly attended time in church. Now, if you're a visitor from out of town and you go to another church, I'm not confronting you here. But for you all that came for just this special time of the year, I want to challenge you a little bit. Jesus Christ is not Lord on Christmas and Easter alone. Jesus Christ is Lord all the time. He's alive and His Word is worthy of embracing daily. If we truly get the Gospel and embrace the glory of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead, then we will long for the Word of God all the time. That's what they did. We need it even when it confronts us right talk to the people of grace bible church and they say they'll tell you they have the scars to show it but we enjoy Christ don't we and love his word that's what we want we just want his word right give me more so next we need to deal with arguably the one of the clearest verses in all the bible concerning god's sovereign grace and salvation This phrase is going to be offensive to some of us in the room. It will be offensive for much of the same reasons why the Jews were angry over the Gentiles getting the gospel. Election is offensive to those who don't believe. It's just a fact. It is very offensive. Why? Why is God predetermining who are going to be his children before the foundation of the world? Why is this offensive to the world? Well, for a couple reasons, because we often think we deserve to be saved. And often the frustration is based on the fact that we all may know some family members who never professed faith in Jesus before they died, so based on this doctrine, they might not be in heaven. Ouch, right? Friends, I just want to warn you First. We don't know what God did with that person's heart right before they died. Second, we need to understand clearly, no one, no one deserves to be saved. Nobody. The Jews of Paul's day don't deserve to be saved. The Gentiles of our day don't be deserve to be saved. No one deserves salvation. Everyone deserves judgment. But God, in His grace, gives unmerited favor to whom He chooses. Notice who are those people who believed in Antioch? Notice, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Luke makes it clear that those who believed were ordained by God to believe. Notice again what the passage says. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It was not an independent act of the will by these Gentiles. But God had ordained a great outpouring of grace on these Gentiles in Antioch. God determined beforehand who would believe. You're hearing it. I'm saying it over and over. Because I want you to get it. God had ordained who the resurrection and life of Jesus would be applied to. Now it's important to note that missionaries did not know who was going to believe beforehand. They don't know who the elect are. We don't know who the elect are. They preach to everyone, including the Jewish people, trusting God with the results. Important. We proclaim the gospel to every person as if they could be one of those whom God has ordained for salvation. At the same time, we trust God with the results, knowing His sovereign choice determines the outcome. It is arguable that this verse is the strongest proof for God's electing grace than in, in the entire Bible. This one verse. If you can get past this one and be an Arminian. Okay, please come show me. There is no way around this verse. You cannot get around this verse. You can argue about this one all you want. God does not choose based on anything good in us. God choose based on His independent free will. God I'm all for free will. God's. God's free will. There is really no way around this voice in this verse. The outcome is determined before God the gospel is even given. Do you understand? But it is important to remember God still uses the gospel proclamation to accomplish His sovereign plan. In other words, the people who would not have believed if they heard the Word of God. In other words, the people that God ordained to believe had to hear the Word of God for them to believe. He ordains the means as well as the end. God had Paul and the missionaries go to Antioch and proclaim the Gospel and God then worked to give life to many of these Gentiles. Then they immediately believed in the Word of God because the instrument of God had been used to give life. Jesus died, and Jesus is alive, so repent and believe. This message is the instrument that God uses to change hearts and accomplish His predetermined plan. That's it. Now listen, if I say to you in this room, I've already said it once, for those that might be unbelievers in the room, repent and believe. Turn and trust in Christ. If you do that, if you turn from your wicked way and trust in Christ, it was ordained for you to do that. And God worked in you to have you do that. You would not do it unless God ordained for that to happen. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It's the same today, by the way, as then. It's hard to hear. Doesn't make sense. Can't reconcile it in our minds always. But it's what the Bible says. So we got to go with it. Right? As many of us know from John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13. We love everybody's quotes verse 12. But verse 13 is very important. Look over there real quick. John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believed in his name. Now, if we stop there, we all say, great. Arminians and Calvinists all stand up and say, I agree. (laughs) We all agree, right? The problem is there's another verse. It's the next one. The next one says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh. What? Nor of the free will of man. Hmm. But of God. Who receives? Those who are born of God. It's an act of God's free will. Not man's. Amen. In fact, and back to our Acts passage. All those who were appointed to eternal life believed. If you're a believer today, you're a believer because God appointed you to believe. So what does that do for us? Does that make us... Like the Jew that was jealous? No, it humbles us, doesn't it? None of us in the room say, man, he chose me because I'm something special. That sounded just like the veggie Tales. <laughs> it's kind of impregnant. <clears throat> by the way, I don't recommend them. In Acts 13, 48-49, the church was being built. God was doing His work. God was spreading His word for the glory of His name. It was growing. And He does the same today. God is all about saving people for Himself through the proclamation of the word of God. The same powerful gospel Paul proclaimed is the same message we proclaim today. And it is used by God to save people today also. Yet notice... With this heightened worship and joy came more opposition. Look at verse 50. In Acts 13, verse 50. The wicked rejection. The wicked rejection. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Oh, friends... This is so typical of anything that brings great glory to God. The enemy does everything he can to squash it. Notice the Jews who were rejecting the gospel knew where they could find some co-enemies of the gospel. Partners in wickedness. Where did they go? They went to the devout women of prominence and leading men of the city. In other words, where did they go? The wicked look for prideful partners. You get that? Mark that. Put that in your mind. Seal it there. That's where the enemy goes. He goes to the prideful. He goes to the ones that think of them something special. The one that is not humble, the enemy goes to. They went to the women of prominence. What's that mean? The women that were well respected. Those that were looked at with respect and honor. Wait a second. Is that bad to honor ladies? To honor women? We do Mother's Day every year, right? Are we supposed to honor our mothers and fathers? Yes. But often, the women or men that are well respected are the ones that pride has grabbed a hold of their heart. those are the perfect ones to go to to put down the gospel. The Jews aren't stupid. They know who they can manipulate. They instigated persecution by using prideful people. (laughs) Leading men, they prompted, they started, they activated. They stirred up trouble until these leaders persecuted the missionaries. Sometimes I feel like when I'm going through these books, especially Luke and Acts, I feel like I talk about pride almost every week. y'all feel like that too? I promise it's not planned. It's just the Bible keeps bringing out all these prideful examples. Everywhere you look, sin, pride. It's there. You say, Mike, you are constantly hammering this thing. No, the Bible is constantly hammering this thing. You think we're prone to pride? Yeah. Just a warning for all of us, pride is the ground for being used by the enemy to oppose the gospel. Oh, this is so convicting. Here it goes. Here comes the cuts. You ready? If you think high of yourself, you are vulnerable to being used by the enemy to destroy the gospel. How many of you want to destroy the gospel? None of us, right? Do we want to be opposed to the gospel at all? None of us want that, do we? And we better flee from pride. We better beg God to show us and expose any pride so we can't be used by the enemy to hurt it. Again, let me give you just a few characteristics or traits of those who have this same pride. Anger. You're talking about anger again. If we get angry often, it's probably because we think things should go our way. Anger says, I am king, and people need to do and think like me. If you are quick to anger, folks, there's a problem. Most likely it's pride, and you're vulnerable to going against the gospel. Here's a second one. Fear or worry. What? That's Pride? If you're always afraid or worrying, it could be a desire to want to control things. Wanting things to go your way. Not trusting God can be a symptom of a heart that wants to be king also. Again, the solution is Jesus, the one who submitted to the Father to spare us great harm from God's wrath. Folks, we can't. If we're warriors, ultimately we're warriors because things might not go the way we want them to go. We must trust King Jesus. Otherwise we're saying we want things to be our way. Anger and worry. Did I get everybody in the room yet? And I have one more. Self-obsession. <laughs> this is the big one. Listen to me closely. If your main topic of conversation or thought is yourself, be concerned. Again, if you're always thinking about how mistreated you are and how everybody has wronged you, the problem could be you're thinking way too high of yourself. Beloved, listen closely. The solution is Jesus Christ. We do need to be obsessed, but not with ourself. With Him. He must be our obsession. If you're obsessed with yourself, be careful because what's going to happen is, is somebody's going to give it to you one day. You say, well, what do you mean? That would be good. I might marry somebody that's all about me. That'd be great. No, it wouldn't. You could then begin to think much more high of yourself than you should And you could begin to be the downfall of the person understanding what the glory of the gospel is. If your spouse thinks you're all that, then they've missed the glory of the gospel. Your spouse needs to know Jesus is all that. For everyone who knows the gospel and is abiding in the gospel, one thing is clear for us. We are nothing and Jesus is everything. We know God is good because he died for us wretched sinners. Amen? Amen. And we are prepared for any obstacles that come our way because we know God is working for his glory and our good. We know God is in control of even evil plots against us. Just as he appoints salvation, he ordains blindsides. Very important. Do you understand? As many as are appointed to believe, believed, right? Ordained by God, believed. But that also means the contrast. Uh Uh-oh. There were some that weren't appointed in that group. Which means that those were going to be what? Angry! (laughs) They were going to be angry. And they got angry, didn't they? And they drove them out of the city. It's hard to hear, but it's the truth, isn't it? Just as he appoints salvation, he ordains blindsides. We need to understand being driven out is still under God's sovereign plan. We must rest in the sovereign grace and peace of God. We must not fear the world, we must not fear man, we must not fear circumstances, we must not exalt ourselves over his plan. What is the solution to fear and pride? Here's the solution. You ready? Look at 13:28 again. Here's the solution it's remembering the predetermined plan of God and Christ's persecution and death. That's the way to survive. 13.28, remember, it states, And though they found no ground putting them to death, they asked Pilate that he be ex- executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him into tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Again, This horrible wickedness brought peace and forgiveness to every tribe, tongue, and people. It brought life. God takes tragedies and turns them into good. So what is good? Many people are reconciled to God. And that is the same thing for these disciples. And why did these disciples, why was Paul so bold? Why is it that even after being persecuted numerous times, over and over and over and over and over again, does he keep... Saying the same message because he knew the message and he believed the message and he understood the message and he trusted the one that gave the hope of life. This message caused the believers to respond with courage and trust in the Lord. Notice in verse 51 but they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. (laughs) This is the missionary's resolve shook off the dust of their feet. This is a symbolic act uh, uh, emphasizing their righteous indignation towards those who were rejecting Jesus Christ. They were handing the rejectors over to the righteous judgment of God. And they did it in protest against them. They protested their rejection. But they did it in dependence upon the Lord, not an arrogant judgment. It was not self-righteousness. But Christ's righteous indignation came through them. Now I, I think this is a case, folks, of uh, righteous anger, for lack of a better term. There is not, again, I, I'm. I just said that anger can be an evidence of pride, but anger doesn't always mean there's pride. Righteous anger is angry because Christ is being rejected, not because I'm not getting my way. Do you understand the difference? Now, here's the key. I don't know about you guys, but I find myself all too often starting out with righteous anger, and it very slowly slips into this uh, self-righteous anger. What I do see from this is they shook off the dust of their feet and protest against them, and what did they do? They moved on. They didn't stand outside the city. You fools! They didn't go back into the city and say, Hey, I'm here to tell you, you guys are going to die. I'm right, you're wrong. Let's argue. They moved on to Iconium. This wasn't a continuous act here of protest against them. How too often I think that's us, isn't it? That's where self-righteousness comes in. When we protest... And it's like we have to protest every day for the next two months. Or, this never happens with marriages, right? When we bring up a sin that we already said we forgave. I just want you to understand that that was wrong what you did. It really frosts me when you do that because that's what you did before. And when I forgave you for that. But I mean... You did it again. You must not have repented. Get off my toes, right? Notice they moved on to Iconium. Just want you to know that this was not the last time Paul saw the people of Pisidian Antioch. Look over at Acts 14, 19. He goes about 30 miles down the road to Iconium. Maybe a little bit further. In verse 19, these guys hunt him down. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Wow. You think they rejected the Messiah? Oh, yeah, many of them. And what did they do? They hunted him down with the people of Iconium later and they stoned him. Peter's to death. This might have been when, by the way, it says that Paul was taken up to the third heaven. Maybe he saw a glimpse. He might have died here. The way it says, supposing him to be dead. Not sure. Beloved, the gospel makes war with the community. When Jesus is proclaimed and exalted by some, others will then reject him and persecute those who embrace Jesus. The great news is God is still working in some through the gospel. So we keep proclaiming it, right? So in light of this persecution and in light of how bad things are, Paul's left, the Gentiles in Antioch are left there by themselves. It doesn't appear that they had a long time. They have this glorious news. We can be saved too. And Paul and the missionaries flee for their lives down to Iconium, later to be chased further how do you think they went about their day? How did it go when they left? How do you think the disciples in, that were left back in Antioch, how do you think they responded? They just responded with grumbling and complaining and, Whoa, is me. This is just horrible. I live in this world where everybody hates me. This is bad. This is miserable. No. Look what they did. 1352. And the disciples were occasionally filled with joy. No, continuously filled with joy, and with the Holy Spirit. Do y'all see this? This verse is so convicting. Is this not convicting? Are your circumstances anything like Paul's in this spot here? Are they? Are they that bad? Anybody in here have it this bad, where you know you're going to be stoned to death in a couple weeks? Hopefully not, right? You just got ran out of a city, you gave the gospel, there was a great revival and everybody says, get out of here. And the disciples were continually filled with joy. An inward attitude of peace and contentment in the Lord. Ultimately, why? Because the Spirit was controlling them. The Spirit was demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Oh, we who have been made alive in Christ, we can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because Christ lives. He lives. We can trust Him. We know He's good. We know He's all we need, isn't He? He's all satisfying, isn't he, folks? He's better than anything this world has to offer. No person's affection is ever going to satisfy your soul. No, I promise. Jesus alone is where our joy is found. He's the one. Trust him today.